So glad to be with you tonight. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries. And we are starting a new um, online Bible study tonight. And I'm trusting that it's going to be a blessing to you. God bless you as you're able to tune in with us tonight and join in either live or from the archives as, as maybe you will watch it later on. And I just want to bring this word to you. And I'm so excited to, um, to be able to start this new series with you tonight. We're going to be starting a series called beholding the glory, understanding relationship with Jesus through the old Testament tabernacle of David. Welcome to this journey. We're going to be looking at a deeper and closer relationship with Jesus by gleaning truth and insights from the tabernacle of David. Some may not even know about this tabernacle of David. What in the world is it? Where was it? And what did it mean? Even more important for today is why should we even look at it today? Why should we study it? Does it even apply to us today? Is there any reason for us to really be paying attention to this? Well, tonight I hope to answer these questions from, from the scriptures and cover a couple of different things. One is my own experience in recent years in a separate study. And then my second one is looking at the scripture itself and how it applies to us today by what the word of God says. A few years ago, I did a class in um, my Wednesday night class, and it was entitled The Apostles of the Acts. And what we did was we went through the book of Acts and primarily we're looking at um, the apostles and the lives and, and different things that we gleaned from them. But what I really want to focus on tonight is the, the one that struck me the most during that study. As I studied it, I was flabbergasted by what I found and by what the Lord did. But I want to share with you, there was one particular thing in that particular study at that time that just changed my life and my understanding forever. And I want to share that with you tonight. I want to share with you the wonders that God gave us from that study for this particular thing, how it even connects with this study of the Tabernacle of David and why we need to see from Scripture this relevance. I'd like for us to begin reading tonight, and I do have several Scriptures. I'm hoping I can get to all of them, but I want us to read first in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And what the one apostle that we're focused on for this particular lesson tonight that really struck me as we went through the apostles of the Acts is the apostle Paul, who was first named Saul. His name was later changed. So we're going to look at who this man Saul was and how in the world it even connects with what we're studying now. So in Philippians chapter 3, I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 and read the first few verses. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And then he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God 
in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So he lists in these verses what he is boasting in or what he did boast in. At this time, he's not. But these were some things that, that tell of his heritage at that time. He was circumcised the eighth day, meaning that he was a true Jew that was brought into the Abrahamic covenant. He was from the stock or the genus. He had actual Jewish blood, genes. His genes, he was a native-born Jew. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a boastful accolade, like, like saying maybe I'm one of the best of the Hebrews you're going to find. He was concerning the law or the Old Testament law, Moses and the oral law. I'm a Pharisee. I'm zealous. I'm rid, rigid. I'm religious. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, doing what I thought was right by Old Testament law and burning with passion to do it. That's where that zeal comes in. Concerning the righteousness of Old Testament law, I was blameless. I had strict adherence to Old Testament law. I was boasting in the keeping of the Old Testament law. So what Paul is telling us here is he was completely, completely steeped in religion. Oh, he was doing all the religious stuff perfectly to a T. But at that time, he had absolutely no relationship with God. Let's talk about the first time that we meet up with the Apostle Paul. And I hope to come back to Philippians chapter 3 here in just a little bit. But I first want to go now to the first time we see the Apostle Paul. And that is found in, um, in Acts chapter 7. And I want to read verses 54 through 60. Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 60. And it says this, when they heard these things, now this was, um, uh, they had just been preaching. And it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. This is talking about Stephen. This is at the martyrdom of Stephen. So they're talking about Stephen here. And Stephen has preached to them. And it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet 
of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. And so here is where we see Saul the first time. This was the apostle Paul before his name was changed. This was in his old life or his, his BC days, so to speak, before Christ. And so he is connected to Stephen's martyrdom in that he's that young man that's the keeper of the coats of the witnesses that were there stoning Stephen. We find that Stephen, that Saul consented to Stephen's death. He was approving of it. He was in union with it. Well, why would he might have, might he have done that? Because we just read from Philippians 3, 1 through 6, his prodigy, his boasts there, that he was zealous he was persecuting the church because he thought that was what he was supposed to be doing. He honestly may have thought that based on Old Testament law and what he believed and understood at the time. So this would explain why he felt gratified at doing this. He was zealous for the law. He was going to obey it. But notice this. I want you to see this. Stephen, in his final breath, is saying this. He is saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he goes on and he says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. In other words, he's praying the same thing that Jesus prayed as he was dying when he cried out, Father, forgive them of their sins. Stephen prayed this prayer, and we're going to see that God answered that prayer for at least one of those accusers or witnesses, this man named Saul. Notice this too, that Stephen in his lifetime never knew the fruit of that prayer. Think about that. Stephen prayed, Father, basically forgive them. Don't lay this charge against them. And so in just a few moments, we're, we're going to read how God answered that prayer with one particular man, and that man was Saul. There may have been others that got saved through either Stephen's martyrdom or through Saul's ministry, Paul's ministry. But notice that Stephen in his lifetime didn't even get to see the fruit of that prayer. But boy, was it fruitful with the apostle Paul, who at that time was Saul. Now let's see Saul's zealousness in his early, early accounts. In Acts chapter 8, continuing on, verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation for him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So Saul is not only consenting to Stephen's death here, but he's also making great havoc, or he is really injurious 
to the church, mistreating them, dishonoring them. He entered their homes, perhaps during house churches, because the church in the early days did meet in homes, similar to what we're doing today with having uh, online services and small home groups and things like that. And he drugged them away to prison. So we see that Saul was a persecutor of Christians. I want us to turn over for the next uh, several readings that we're going to do. We're going to be either in Acts chapter 9 or in Acts chapter 26. And so I want to read right now a few verses from Acts 26. I want to read verse 4 through 11. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me. Now, Paul is speaking here. He's speaking before King Agrippa. And he says this, they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were to put them to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So here we see just more account of how Paul, at the time that he was still Saul, was um, wreaking havoc to the church when they were meeting. Now, in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, we see that he's continuing that. It says this, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, which was an early title for the church and for the belief of Jesus, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's still doing that. He's continuing to breathe, to capture them, to breathe threats against them. But God had other plans. Now let's look down and read in verse 3 through 19. I may have to skip around a little bit, but this is Paul's conversion on the way to Damascus. In verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, meaning Saul, trembling and astonished, I think I would be too, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise 
and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. In other words, he was now blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now enter another person into this picture. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Now, notice Ananias' first response to this. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about him. I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So in other words, you know, my paraphrase is something along the lines of, uh, Lord, are you sure? I mean, this, this guy, I've heard about him. I mean, let me tell you about him just in case you don't know about what he's been doing. You know, I can kind of see this uh, sort of playing out like that because Ananias has heard about him. He knows this Saul of Tarsus and he knows what he's doing to the church. But notice this, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So God has other plans. God has seen Saul as a chosen vessel. Now, Saul was a murderer. He was a zealot. He was a persecutor. He was vehemently opposed to Christianity. He was a captor. But notice how God saw him. God saw him as a selected, chosen vessel, a chosen instrument to carry the gospel primarily to Gentiles and also to the Jews. So Saul's mission here is defined. Notice that God now here answers Saul's prayer because on the road, remember, when he realized he was persecuting Jesus, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? So God answers his prayer and he tells him, this is what you're called to do, Saul. And so he begins. Now, how hopeful and encouraging is this, that God took a murderer, an opponent of Jesus, one that hated Jesus, and he transformed him in one moment's time, in one moment of real repentance and forgiveness. Saul repented. He found forgiveness of all of his sins. God washed them away. 
and removed the guilt of those sins. In other words, he erased Saul's slate and he gave him a brand new start. Beloved, God is still doing that today with every repentant person who will come to him, everyone who will meet him. No matter what you have done, God will forgive you if you are sincere when you call out to him and he will cause you to become his. He does the same thing today. Now we find more details in Galatians chapter one. I'm gonna not read this to you just for the sake of time tonight, but in Galatians chapter one, verses 11 through 24, this takes us on kind of Paul's journey or Saul's journey right after he gets saved. There's a little bit of a gap between verse 19 and verse 20 of Acts chapter um, 9 here. And so we want to, um, to see what, at, what else happens in Saul's life because this is important. Okay? His name is changed. In Acts 13, 9, we find out that at some point his name gets changed from Saul to Paul. It's interesting because Saul meant something that was desired, something he could boast in. But Paul meant little. Hallelujah. That word for Paul, little, Paulus, is found 156 times in the New Testament, and 149 of those are in the book of Acts. So what happens? Galatians 1 tells us he stole away with God. He went to Arabia, to Mount Sinai. He went to the same mountain that Moses had been on and that Elijah had been on. Paul went to the mountain of God where he could get alone with God. He spent time getting to know God. He spent time falling in love with God, not with law. Remember who Paul was, who Saul was at that time. He was a Pharisee. He was skilled and trained under Gamaliel. He was on the road to being super leader in the Jewish tradition. He had that ahead of him. But this is where, when he went to Mount Sinai, this is where Paul moved from religion to relationship. Paul found out, hallelujah, that religion didn't have it. Religion wasn't where he needed to be. He needed to be in a relationship with Jesus. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. And it has always been that way with God. Even back in the Old Testament, even all the way back to with Adam, because he walked every day with him in the cool of the day. God talked to Noah when they went to build the tabernacle of Moses. God said, build me a house because I want to dwell with you. It's always, always been about relationship with the Lord. And this was the nugget that just, just blew me away when we were doing this act study. Hallelujah, is that Paul moved from religion to relationship. He spent time with God before he did anything else. He sought God. As a matter of fact, we learn that he was there about three years. He spent about three years alone with God, building a relationship. And the Bible tells us there in Galatians, 
He didn't confer with flesh and blood. He didn't seek people's opinion or praise. He didn't even seek their teaching and their commentaries. He focused on God and on God's word and on the God of the word in relationship. Hallelujah. So here we see Paul is the answer to Stephen's prayer, at least one of them. And Stephen will share. Think about this. Stephen's going to have a share in all of the fruit of Paul's ministry, all of it, because he was one that prayed. And through his prayer, God led the apostle, um, the, the man Saul, to become the apostle Paul. We also see here that God saved the vilest of sinners, even those that were zealous with religiosity. Saul was like that at that time. God transformed his heart in an instant, washed him free of sin, made him clean. God shares himself with anyone hungry enough for a relationship with him. Paul was hungry. He was hungry. Oh, he had the law down packed. He could quote it backwards and forwards. Oh, he knew it. And he honestly thought he was strictly adhering to it. But he didn't know God. He didn't know the God who gave that law. He didn't know him in relationship. He didn't have an experiential relationship with him. And God was, uh, Paul was hungry for that at that time. So he went and God found, God just blessed Saul with that. And he gave him, he gave him the new name. He gave him a new slate. He gave him a new relationship and he fed his hunger and he built a relationship with Saul. Paul kept his first love alive after he got saved. Do you know Jesus warned that in the last days when lawlessness will abound, and beloved, we are in that season, we are in that time today. Jesus talked about how the love of many will grow cold. And I'll never forget when I was studying that one day, the Lord showed me whenever I studied into that, it, it means literally just to blow on something to chill it. So it reminded me of if you have a, a hot cup of soup or something like that, and you, you know, dig a spoonful out and you are, are blowing on it to chill it down. That's what that means when it says the love of many will grow cold. It's that that person is literally chilling it down. Don't let that be the way it was. The Bible talks about in Revelation about not losing our first love, the, the church that had lost their first love. And God wants our love to be alive for him. God will meet anyone who's hungry enough for relationship with him. So Paul found this to be true. And I want to turn to this scripture right now because I want to read this from the word of God to you in Philippians chapter 3. You know, we read the first few verses of this chapter and about how Paul thought he could boast in all these wonderful things. But in verse 7, after he lists all those accolades that he could have boasted in, in verse 7 it says this, But what things were gained to me, all these wonderful things that I could have boasted in or that I used to boast in, these I have counted loss or dung for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency 
of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For the superior thing, the superiority, the superiority, the superior thing above everything else is knowing Jesus. And that becomes Paul's testimony and Paul's great pursuit in life. That is the superior thing. And in life, it is still true for all of us. So now after we understand this, how in the world does it connect to lead us into a Tabernacle of David study? Well, now let's turn over to the book of Amos, and we're going to read a prophecy from the Old Testament that speaks about what we're studying now. And this is the impetus for directing us to this study. In the book of Amos, which is one of the minor prophets, in the book of Amos, in chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, we read this. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom or mankind, is what it's referring to there. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. So here we find this prophetic word about this thing called the tabernacle of David and how this is what God is going to raise up in a coming time. And so now let's talk about what this prophetic word is speaking of. It says that it's going to raise up the tabernacle of David. Raise it up because it's, it's come to ruins. God is going to cause it to rise up on the scene and come alive again. He's going to repair its damages or its gaps in the wall. It's going to raise it from its rubble and demolition. He's going to rebuild it as in the days of old, or in other words, in the same fashion like it was in King David's day and when it was used there. And the reason for doing that is because he's wanting to possess the beautiful, rightful inheritance of mankind, in other words, and bring them in to a relationship. He wants the residual of the people of God, the, even the people of the tribe of, um, of the Israelites and of, of Esau and, and his descendants um, from Jacob and all the Gentiles, believers who would seek after him. This is what its purpose is. It's to bring all people into a real covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, that they can enjoy the inheritance with him. Because, beloved, it's always been about God having a relationship with people. That's been his dream all along. That's why he made man to begin with. Hallelujah. He wants us to know him, not just know about him but to truly know him. Paul was steeped in religion as Saul. He, he knew all about the God of the Old Testament. He knew all of God's laws, God's demands, all of the holiness of God, all about the fear of God. He knew all of those things, but he did not know in experiential relationship the God of that word. And so now 
God is showing him that he needs to know him. He wants him to be in a relationship. And Paul comes to, dis to discover and to tell us that this is the superior thing. So if this prophecy is of a coming future time, how does it connect with us in the 21st century? Well, let's look in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 14, and we're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 14 in verse 27. In Acts chapter 14. In Acts 14, we see that Paul's early, he's been early in his ministry, and he's going around and he's doing um, the spreading the gospel and doing the work of the kingdom, and God's saving Gentiles all over the place and, and filling them with the Holy Spirit and just doing miracles and signs and wonders. And so in verse 27 of Acts chapter 14, it says this, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Continuing on in chapter 15. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So what we find here is that you've got Judaizers coming in to the the new church to the Christian believers, and they're trying to bring in circumcision and force the law upon them. And they're saying that, well, the only way you can be saved is if you're circumcised in your flesh, which was a sign of covenant with Abraham. This is true. At that time, it was that, that way, and that's how they were identified. Paul gets more into that in the book of Galatians chapter 3, and I would encourage you to read that. The whole book of Galatians is all about Judaizers in the church and, and the response that it should be. But they were trying to say then that the work of God that had been going on to save all these Gentiles, that, that it wasn't complete, that they had to add something more to it. Beloved, the true gospel of Jesus is all about faith. Works come because of our faith, but we don't have to add some work to believing in Jesus to be saved. And that's exactly what they were trying to say here. So it created a stir and they had never dealt with this before. Prior to this time, the church, the believers in Christ were, were Jewish people. So now we see God's pouring out his spirit all over the Gentiles, those who are not Jews by birth and by, by genealogy. And, and so they're like, well, what do we do? I mean, do we need to make them keep the law and get circumcised or not? So it became a question. So they went up to Jerusalem and they took it to the Jerusalem council there where Peter, John, the apostle, and James, the half brother of Jesus were part of that council. There were others, but those were tremendous leaders in the early church in Jerusalem at that time. So in verse three, it says, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, 
describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And notice this. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. Beloved, when we hear of anybody getting saved, Jew or Gentile alike, it should cause great joy to us. Hallelujah. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Now you have to remember something. God had said that the working of the signs and the wonders were to confirm the word or to attest that it was really from God. Verse 13, and after they had become silent, James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. God gave him a rhema word. God gave him an understanding then, and this is what he says. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles, listen to this, to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. So in other words, Peter, and Peter rises up and, and speaks about his own calling to the Gentiles and how he noticed and witnessed God poured out. Saul, uh, Paul and Barnabas tell him about all the signs and wonders. And so then James, the apostle, James, the um, brother, half-brother of Jesus, steps up and rises up, and God gives him a rhema word, and he says, this is the fulfillment of that Amos prophecy. This is what it was all about. It's rebuilding the tabernacle of David so that God would have a people, so that God would have a people that are his, that are seeking after him, that love him, that are getting to know him, and that are growing in a relationship with him. Hallelujah. This is what it was all about. Praise be to God. 
And so they're finding out that it's not about religion. It's about relationship. But, you know, even there we saw where some of the sect of the Pharisees, some of the religious folk, didn't like this new thing that God was doing. Beloved, a lot of times God will do a brand new thing, and it'll be outside the box. It'll be something that maybe we weren't expecting. As a matter of fact, I believe that when this pandemic is over and through this thing, God is birthing something new and fresh. And, you know, Jesus talked about needing new wineskins to be able to receive the new wine. We better be pliable. The, the old wineskins had gotten hard and crackly and brittle and all of that. And so when you pour the new wine in there, they would all break. They couldn't hold it. They couldn't be useful anymore. And God doesn't want that. He wants us to be new wineskins receiving the new that he's doing, even if it blows our mind, even if it's outside of what we think it should be. That's what was happening here. You know, you had some that were religious saying, well, that don't fit within the box that we've created. That's not what we think God should be doing. And that's not how he should be pouring out and working in these days. And so they had to seek the Lord and they had to realize, no, God is pouring out a fresh new thing. It's now the fulfillment time for the tabernacle of David to come back to life again. And we're going to study what that's all about. But what it's talking about is a relationship with Jesus. And I wanted to share with you just one example that, that I know of from my lifetime. In, in my lifetime, there was back in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a movement of God. It was a powerful thing called the Jesus movement. And, you know, religious folks at that time re rejected it. Most of the church rejected it. Matter of fact, they didn't even want to, to have anything to do with these hippies. They rejected them. They, they didn't want, they didn't like their hair being long. They didn't like their, um, their earrings, their dress, their jewelry, their blue jeans, and their t-shirts. They didn't like their music style. They didn't like any of these things. So the church was pushing them out. The church was rejecting them and pushing them away. And yet, um, you know, God had a different purpose, just like with Saul. God saw something different. So many of them that have been saved through the Jesus movement have testified that the reason they sought drugs and alcohol and all of those other addictions and things they got into, um, serious rock and roll, heavy metal music and all that stuff, was because of the way the church treated them. And they were like, well, if this is God, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But let me tell you what, millions of parents and grandparents were praying in their secret places for those hippie children of theirs, for those hippie grandchildren of theirs. And they cried out to God. God answered. And God swooped in in a moment's time out of nowhere, blew the whole church away by what he did. And there was one man, one pastor, his name was Chuck Smith, a godly man. I, I respected him highly. He's gone on to be with the Lord now. But God used that one man, put it in his heart, put a burden in his heart and a love for these people. And he went to them and he opened up the gospel to them and he gave them love and acceptance as they were. This was through the Calvary Chapel movement in Costa Mesa. 
He accepted them as they were. He loved them as they were. He led them to Jesus, baptized I don't know how many hundreds in the Pacific Ocean, welcomed them as they were when all the other churches were rejecting them. This was a new thing that God was up to, but this one godly man didn't reject them, and millions have been saved through them, and at that time there were thousands, thousands that got saved. They have left an indelible mark in Christianity and in the church on Christian music. For instance, remember some of the early pioneers of contemporary music, Christian music. Keith Green is one of the ones that comes to mind. Twyla Parrish, Mylon Lefevre, Sweet Comfort Band, Evie, Chuck Gerard, Joel Chernoff, and Lamb. Beloved, one of the fabulous things that God was doing in the Jesus movement was he was saving not just Gentiles, but a lot of those hippies were Jewish people, and God was saving his own people. He was pouring out his spirit even to the Jewish people as well as to the Gentiles, and many of them can testify of this. And so contemporary praise and worship music today owes to these pioneers of the faith. They were the miracles of God. They were the salvation of God from the Jesus movement. But the religious folk, a lot of them didn't receive it, even after it was proven that God was up to something new and God was doing it. We, God was after taking out a people for himself. He's doing the same thing today. And he will save anybody, anywhere, who will call upon him. Hallelujah. He is fulfilling this promise. He's after people in a relationship with him. And that is what the tabernacle of David is all about. He's breaking through religious barriers. He's breaking out of the box. And he's breaking through with a brand new thing because he wants to reach the masses of mankind. He wants to reach that remnant of mankind. He wants to reach all who would have him. He's doing that today. The purpose of the tabernacle of David will show us about relationship, real relationship with Jesus, those who are wanting him, those who are hungry for him. Hallelujah. God is still, if that was true, and James could stand up and say, this is the fulfillment of this Amos prophecy, it began then, guess what? 2,000 years later, it's still going strong. It's still what God is doing today. And so, beloved, if this started back then and continues to us today because it's an end-time move of God rebuilding the tabernacle of David, it is for us. It's happening in our lifetime. And I think we need to study and understand the tabernacle of David and how it will draw us in to a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And this study is seeking to do that. So I pray you can join me again for the future lessons as we continue moving forward in this study. It will probably be seven, eight, 10 weeks, something along those lines on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. God bless you is my prayer. I pray that this has been a blessing to you and that, that you want to go after God because he wants a relationship with you, beloved. 
It's about a real relationship. And maybe you're like Paul was when he was Saul. Maybe you're steeped in religion. Maybe you've gone to church all of your life. Maybe you've done all the religious duties that you thought you were supposed to do. But there's a, there's a hole in your heart because there's a, a relationship with God that you've never had. Maybe you've never known him, the real, the real relationship. You've never experienced that with him. Beloved, he wants you to do that. And he's calling you. And he's calling you like he called Saul to move from religion to relationship. That's what he's all about. And he will fill that for you. And you will find that same superior thing of knowing Jesus that Saul found when God changed him from Saul to Paul. I pray that you will experience that as well in a growing and vibrant way as we go through these studies together. God bless you. In Jesus' name is my prayer.